This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week talking about money with an interesting development in safeguarding your assets from financial abuse. Representatives with financial institutions are now required to ask clients if they want to designate a so-called trusted person who they can talk to about your health, mental capacity, and financial circumstances if they suspect financial exploitation or have concerns about your decision-making capacity. Our Zoomer squad weighed in on the trusted person concept when they joined Libby on Monday. Peter Mugridge is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz is vice president of Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP. And Bill Van Gorder is the chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. We first heard about it when some of our members got in touch with us uh, soon after the uh, the move was proposed, and those members were very concerned. They felt that it was invasive, that it took control out of the seniors' hands by making them look uh, incompetent or possibly uh, incompetent to make their own uh, uh, decisions, and they... Uh, uh, they were they were pretty uh, severe in their criticism of uh, once again assuming that just because you're older you don't know what you're doing. Others, especially those in the industry, uh, thought it was a good safeguard that if somebody had an inability uh, to make good decisions, which can can happen to people as they get older, it was good to have to at least know there was somebody that the senior had named. Uh, to take over that uh, decision-making rather than having it be uh, uh, someone who wasn't uh, close uh, to them. And it was really divided. CARP did not take any uh, specific uh, opinion either way. Uh, uh, We believe that, once again, uh, seniors uh, uh, have the right to make their own decisions. Uh, Even They even have the right to make uh, mistakes, and they need decisions made with them, not for them. So this was something each individual should uh, consider. And now that the the institutions who are dealing with it are getting in touch with people asking that they'd like to name someone, we're suggesting that uh, they consider it and do what they want to do, but don't feel pressed in either direction. David, how is this different? I mean, people designate an attorney or a substitute decision maker, and I guess there are rules about when well, that, that takes effect. I was but say, the, the key is what happens afterward, because you're right, we have power of attorney right now. We have, uh, I think you can give certain instructions about do not resuscitate or, or like end of life situations. But the question is, so let's say you do, and, you, and Bill's right, you don't have to, you're not obligated to, but you decide... I'm going to nominate person X as my trusted person. Now he informs the financial planner, I think David's not competent anymore to make his own decisions. The guy himself is not allowed to buy or sell or intervene, but he informs the financial planner that the elderly person is not competent. Okay, 
Now, now what? So what? there must be some legal framework that the financial planner can do or should do or maybe even must do. Does he face liability if he ignores the trusted person? What if a relative steps in and says that the trusted person isn't really that trusted? So I can foresee all kinds of complex litigation here unless they have spelled out the systems. And I, I'm sure they have. It's just that I don't know what they are. Peter. I think on the whole, maybe it's a good thing. I, I, I think it's like, it, this is the, um, you know, the financial industry responding to complaints that, uh, you know, a lot of older seniors were being, um, you know, their money was being mishandled by family members or friends, or that they were they were making sort of, you know, decisions that may not have been the best for their own good. And, and, and you know, the financial advisor had nowhere to turn to. So th- this is... I. I think this might be a good thing. Like it, if there's someone trusted, you can talk to and say, "Look, what's going on here? Is, is have you noticed the person is declining in in her capacity to handle her her banking situation?" You know, um, I, I can't see it as a bad thing. You know, if you don't want one, you don't have to do it. And for those who want one, can do it. And so I, I only see it as a, as a you know a positive step forward. Not it's not going to eliminate you know the uh, you know uh, financial exploitation, but it, it could it could sort of uh, limit it before it gets out of hand. Peter Mogridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still with news on your money, we learned this week that the S&P 500 on Wall Street has entered bear market territory, while the TSX on Bay Street has re-entered correction territory. At the same time, investors are grappling with the ongoing war in Ukraine, which is causing global supply chain disruptions and a strain on the supply of gas. And the Bank of Canada is responding to record high inflation by regularly increasing interest rates, as is the U.S. Federal Reserve stateside. What are the implications of all of this for investors? While filling in for Libby on Tuesday, Marissa Lennox was joined by Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor at Alan Small Financial Group, IA Private Wealth. A bear market is when the markets fall more than 20% from their most recent highs. So greater than 20% loss. Sometimes you hear the term correction. A correction is when the losses are greater than 10%. So anything greater than 10% losses from the recent highs is a correction, and anything greater than uh, 20% would be considered a bear market. And I guess investors kind of get a little confused or caught up in these in these terms or these labels, but there are so many different types of, of indices or, or, or exchanges where stocks trade in the United States. There are uh, three main ones, which are the, the NASDAQ, which is mostly for tech stocks, maybe some pharmaceutical companies trade there. Then there's the, the main index, which is the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. As the name implies, it's an index for 500 companies, 500 stocks trade on that index. And then the smallest one is the Dow Jones, which we hear a lot of. Dow Jones Industrial Average is made up of just 30. So when you look at those three uh, indices, Dow Jones being 30 stocks only, um, you look at the NASDAQ, which is a very large index, that market is down over 30% from the recent highs. 
the S&P 500, which is the main index that most of us look at, which gives us a snapshot on how the U.S. in general is doing, that's down just over 20% now, so bear market territory as well. And the Dow Jones, which gains a lot of the, uh, I guess, the, the media eye or what we tend to see first when we look at how things are going on, that's down about 17 18%. And lastly, if you want to look at our market here, our main market in Canada, which is the Toronto stock market, we're just entering into correction territory now, just down uh, greater than 10% now. And the reason why we've fared better than our U.S. Uh, neighbors to the south is a lot of our index is made up of oil companies. And as we all know, when we go visit the gasoline stations recently, oil stocks uh, are doing quite well because the price of oil has gone way up. So mm-hmm. that helps the oil component of the Toronto stock market. So that kind of keeps things from falling too much. But if you were to factor out the oil, our index here on the Toronto Stock Exchange would also be down uh, quite a bit more. It's amazing how it's all connected. We saw there was a bit of a rebound this morning, but you know, yesterday was a tough day. So was Friday. Is this short term or you know, how, what do you make of that? Well, I think there are a lot of people, such as myself, that uh, believe this market is oversold, that the selling has been too excessive. There are a bunch of people that believe there's still more selling to go. So whenever you see days like we've had the last three days where the selling has been, uh, how can I use the word, outrageously high, you tend to get buyers wanting to buy the selling. And so what I think you saw today uh, and we've seen this at certain points in time during this bear market, uh, different investors coming in, buying these, these sell-offs or these dips when it's excessive, and unfortunately only to see the market fall further. So it's that old adage or saying, you're trying to catch a falling knife, very difficult to do. And that's why, as an advisor, I've been recommending to my investors and investors that I've been speaking to is, you can't do that. You can't try and time the market. You can never try and time the market. All we can continue to do is buy good quality investments that are cheap. And if they're cheap today, there's no guarantee they won't be cheap or cheaper next week. But we can't worry about that. If we buy good quality and if it's cheap in general, at some point down the road, their value will be realized and the stock should start to go higher. The unfortunate part for all of us is we just don't know when. I don't think it's a matter of if. It's more a matter of when. And when you think in those terms, you know, you want to start buying good quality investments when they are cheap because at some point their value will be realized. Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor at Alan Small Financial Group, IA Private Wealth. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, lifting COVID vaccine mandates for travelers in Canada. What will this mean for the already congested airports? Our recovering politicians weigh in next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
When our Recovering Politicians panel joined Fight Back on Tuesday, the hot topics included changes for Canadian travellers. Starting Monday, COVID vaccine mandates are lifted for travellers on planes and trains within Canada and for outgoing international air passengers. The announcement from the Trudeau Liberals on Tuesday came not long after they announced that random testing for vaccinated travelers would be lifted in airports. Then there is the ongoing federal conservative leadership race. The executive director of the Conservative Party of Canada has told the candidates to expect over 600,000 membership votes this time around. That is more than double the total of liberal membership votes when Justin Trudeau first ran for leader in 2013. What can Canadians garner from this relatively high number of conservative signups? While filling in for Libby, Marissa asked this of former Ontario NDP leader Howard Hampton, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister Charles Souza, and former interim federal conservative leader Lisa Raitt. But first to the question on travel. Is this the right time to be lifting COVID restrictions for travel, even in light of added congestion in airports? One of the interesting things, Marissa, that I don't think people understand that part of the part of the problem with the vaccine mandates is that a lot of people who work at the GTAA um, actually could come back to work now. They couldn't work when the vaccine mandate was in place because they chose not to be vaccinated. With the lifting of the vaccine mandate, they can return to work and that will actually alleviate some of the pressure they have. What they say is they don't have enough people in order to do the processing in order to in order to work at Air Canada, lifting the mandate actually gives them the ability to go back to that pool of talent and bring them back. So it is a big deal. That's right. And Charles, you know, Lisa makes mention of the bigger problem at the airport. It's an issue that has been growing in its intensity. Are the airlines and airports authorities doing enough? Do you get a sense that there's a real plan here to address these excessive delays? And are you pleased to see that this vaccine mandate is being relaxed? Uh, well, I, I, I'm concerned that it, it, they weren't prepared for it. Obviously, it was anticipated that there'd be peaks and there was going to be a lot more traveling. And obviously, people weren't showing up for work and there were delays. And there were delays not just in Canada, but I presume the U.S. Customs also had delays. And that's a big issue at Pearson Airport. Um, I'm, I'm more concerned about a coordinated mandate with other countries as people travel. But I am supportive of, of, uh, of relaxing some of these mandates and allowing people to, to travel. Howard, how about you? I mean, do you worry at all from from a health perspective about the the easing of this restriction? Um, I always look to see if there's a plan, and I'm not sure there's a plan here. Yeah, I I I, yeah. I suspect. I mean, this looks to me like what you'd call, "Gee, we're under pressure. We have to do something." Um, I'm not, but I'm not sure there's a plan. And and for those who think that COVID has disappeared. Well, I, I think we're in for a very ugly surprise when you have hundreds of millions of people across the globe who have not been vaccinated and the virus continues to circulate and mutate and mutate. Uh, I suspect we're going to see many more variants of uh, the virus and some of them may be more transmissible and some of them may be far more dangerous to human health. Let's turn our attention to the federal conservative leadership race. As I understand, Lisa, this will be, assuming the numbers hold true, the largest membership of any political party in Canada ever. What does that signal to you? 
Well, what it signals to me is that there's a lot of disgruntled people out there who are looking for a change in government to the point that they're willing to pony up their $15 to be part of the process of picking the next leader that they think can unseat the Liberal government. I think that's really what it's coming down to. If the vote were held tomorrow, Charles, Pierre Polyev, who's the front runner, would probably secure a first ballot victory. How how do the Liberals feel? <clears throat> they should be worried. I mean, I mean, the numbers are huge. It's very telling of the disgruntled disenchantment that exists across the country. And regardless of people calling it Pierre inflation with regards to these numbers, the numbers are clear. There's a lot of people signing up for the Conservative Party, even liberals. And similarly to what happened in Ontario in 2018 and reinforced again in this last election, people are looking for a change and, and, and they're motivated. And people will vote when they're motivated. You know, Howard, I'll bring you in on this. What factors do you, would you say are contributing to that? What do you think? What do you make of it? Well, look around the world today. I mean, I think people are scared. I think people are angry. Ordinary working people are really feeling the pinch. For all kinds of ordinary working people, uh, increasingly they are angry at the current prime minister. How this is going to pan out uh, two months from now, six months from now, a year from now, uh, will be very interesting. But, but there is no doubt there's a very volatile, very angry electorate out there right now. Ontario NDP leader Howard Hampton, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister Charles Souza, and former interim federal conservative leader Lisa Raitt. Fight Back's Tuesday Recovering Politicians panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The provincial election June 2nd saw Doug Ford's PCs win a second larger majority government, with the two major opposition parties, the New Democrats and Liberals, losing their leaders before the night was over. The NDP is still the official opposition, but the question is, who will take over and where did they go wrong? Peter Tabbins is likely taking over on an interim basis, but there is some buzz around fellow longtime NDP MPP Marit Stiles, re-elected in her Davenport riding in a landslide victory. Marit joined Libby on Monday to talk about whether she is running to succeed Andrea Horvath and what went wrong for the New Democrats during the election campaign. Obviously, uh, we wasn't the result that we wanted. You know, I mean, we really uh, set out to uh, to form government. You know, we really did. And uh, we lost a few seats. We maintained our official opposition status, which I think is very important because I think the role of opposition is just is, is fundamental. Right. Um, but, you know, absolutely not the result we were looking for uh, and a lot of thinking, you know, has to go in now because really four years uh, till the next election. It's not a long time. <laughs> well, they say that a week is an eternity in politics. <laughs> I guess it's not a long time if you have to uh, really regroup. Do you have thoughts on where your campaign went wrong? You know, I think that we, um, I think that one of the things that we probably uh, needed to do um, a little bit more is is give people a clear sense of what we were proposing, you know. And I don't want to I don't want to underestimate you know the moment, right? I mean, I think obviously you know the, the the decision of the voters of Ontario is always the right decision, right? I mean, you really have to respect 
that's something I've certainly learned uh, knocking on doors is, you know, you respect differences of opinion and you respect where people p- place their vote. It's, it's fundamental. But I do think it's, um, it was tough to inspire people. Uh, a lo- I think one of the things that I find just the most disappointing overall was just how few people actually voted. And I will say, you know, from speaking on the doorsteps in my riding, but also, you know, in other parts of the province over the last months before the election, um, I really felt like people were, well, first of all, people were tired, right? They were tired. And I think there's a sense as well that they've been taken for granted, that their vote doesn't make a difference. And that, that breaks my heart, right? Because of course, you don't get into this line of work unless you have some kind of belief in democracy and the importance of, of government and elected positions. And, um, and so I, I really feel like there was a lot of work that we need to do, but not just us, all the parties in, in, in really speaking and representing everyone, um, and connecting with those people who really feel like that they just haven't, that their vote doesn't matter anymore. Because I really felt like that was what that was about, is a sense that my vote won't really make a difference. And that's just, uh, that's too bad. I, I do want to say, I think that it isn't so much in our party about left versus right. I think, I, you know, or left versus center. Um, I think the real key is going to be, yes, um, ideas, bold ideas. It's going to be about... Um, you know, willingness to run a really successful um, election and what that means, you know, what everybody's vision is for how we are going to defeat Ford. Um, and, and it's going to mean, you know, which of us emerges as somebody who can energize and inspire, again, especially those, not just folks who vote NDP, but folks who maybe uh, traditionally vote liberal or traditionally vote conservative. Or um, are new conservatives that Ford has got to vote for him. It, well, exactly, you know, and, and all of those folks, um, who, again, who didn't vote this time, you know, I, I found, and I will say too, um, you know, when Andrea took over the NDP, there were only seven MPPs at the time. Uh, we were struggling financially. Um, we weren't seen as a serious contender for government. Uh, and she did make, you know, the party more diverse. She brought in a lot of young people. And I think that's something we have to keep doing, right? Uh, I saw more young people involved and engaged in our NDP campaigns across the province than I ever can remember in this last election. The kids, uh, they want different, they want something more. They see their future as quite grim. And, and they need somebody who's going to push for change that gives them hope. And so if we can, if we can tap into that, if we can give them um, a reason to hope and to vote, uh, I think we're going to be uh, in a really good place um, to form government, but also just to simply to, to hopefully inspire all those folks who may not have felt this time like voting was right for them. NDP MPP Marit Stiles in conversation with Libby on Monday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. 
Jody in Toronto phoned to respond to the way Toronto Police Chief James Raymer announced details of the new report on systemic racism in the Toronto Police Service. I was a little disappointed with this uh, temporary uh, police chief yesterday. Uh, certainly, we should try to stamp out racism wherever we can, avoid it, whatever. It, it has no place in our lives. But what he did yesterday, I think, endangers our city more so. It seems that we're mirroring the states now with the defund the police. And uh, we know what's happening there with the rampant crime. Police are leaving the force. They're not being replaced. Uh, I think we're just re- mirroring the states, and that really scares me. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Jane in Scarborough, who phoned about her firsthand experience with financial abuse of her elderly mother. My mom, at the age of 75, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The uh, doctor advised her to put my sister and I on her bank account uh, to make sure that things were okay. At 78, the Alzheimer's really took hold. My brother got a hold of her bank card and drained her bank account every single month, never paid the bills, never paid the rent. Her phone got cut off. She got evicted at the age of 79. And my sister and I were powerless to stop it. The worst part of it, too, we weren't alone. We found out this goes on so many times in so many families, and no one can stop it. Something needs to be done because elder financial abuse and elder abuse, period, has got to stop. It's got, people need to stand up and say something and stop it from happening. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.